day, everyone, and Happy New Year from all of us here at Detroit Today. Of course, we are all happy to leave 2020 behind us, and we're hoping for a much better 2021. We also hope that you got some time this break just to sit back and maybe do not very much at all. Turn off the radio, turn off the television, stop reading Twitter and Facebook and other social media, and just really relax and prepare for what might be coming our way in 2021, but also thinking about all of the things that we experienced together in 2020. And of course, we hope you are all charged up and ready to get back into it here on Detroit Today. Looking back on the news of last year just here in Michigan is really overwhelming, to say the least. And my next guest had a huge role to play in a lot of the big stories of the year, from fighting scams related to the global pandemic to responding to GOP attempts to overturn the will of voters by lying about voter fraud in court and investigating and prosecuting violent white supremacist groups who are targeting Governor Gretchen Whitmer and others. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has been busy, and she joins us now to talk about what to expect from her office in the coming year. Attorney General Dana Nessel, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me today, Stephen. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. So uh, let's start here. You said there might be actions taken against the attorneys who have been lying in court about voter fraud in the November election. Tell us what the status is of that. Well, uh, we do have some cases that remain pending. And generally speaking, when you are asking for sanctions, when you're asking for court costs or attorney's fees, you wait until those cases have been closed out before you ask for those things. Um, but, you know, attorneys uh, in our state and in every state uh, of the union, you know, we take an oath uh, the same way a public officer takes an oath. And, and that's an oath to uphold and to support the Constitution. But there's more to it than that. And that is that you not file frivolous or meritless cases. Uh, and it's also to not make uh, intentional misrepresentations of fact uh, or of the law to a court or a tribunal. And so in my mind, uh, these attorneys, many of them who have been representing either the Trump campaign directly or allies of the Trump campaign, they have uh, violated the rules of professional ethics. There are numerous canons that they have repeatedly violated. And my perspective is this. Um, just because they are representing the president of the United States does not mean that they are held to a different or lower standard than any other attorney that appears before a court of law. Hmm. Um, and so they should be held accountable the exact same way. And the thing that I think people need to understand is every time one of these frivolous cases um, that is based on intentional misrepresentations is filed, remember, it is the state of Michigan tax dollars that go towards defending these lawsuits over and over again many times with the exact same incorrect facts uh, that have already been debunked. Um, so these are, these are wasted tax dollars. And at a certain point, I think it is imperative upon my office uh, to ask for those sanctions, to ask for those court costs. And I will tell you uh, in no uncertain terms that I intend to file complaints with the Attorney Grievance Commission against some of these attorneys when we know for a fact 
there is, is no colorable claim that they've made or we know that they have inten- intentionally made misrepresentations to the court. And I could provide numerous examples of that where there is no argument. I mean, there's no argument that there is an Edison County in Michigan, <laughs> right? I mean, a quick Google search, when you say there are massive inaccuracies in Edison County, you can't argue, oh, well, I, I thought there was. Uh, you know, an attorney can't say that. You can't make an argument, as we know Sidney Powell did, saying there was an alternative slate of electors that was chosen by the legislature uh, to represent Donald Trump as the winner of our 16 electoral votes. There's no argument. We know that did not occur. And yet that um, is part of court pleadings that right now are before the United States Supreme Court that were filed by Sidney Powell. Mm. How do you allow her to get away with this conduct when we know that she is breaching every canon of ethics that exists um, in the Michigan professional rules of conduct. So so one of the things that's really interesting to me about this is that this kind of charge against attorneys is pretty rare, even even for attorneys who, who file really uh, silly or or unfounded lawsuits in in uh, in courts. What what's interesting to me is is the the insistence that you're having that this time and this case because of the stakes involved, it's really important to try to hold people accountable in a in a different way, and I, I think there are some people who might dismiss that as a political motive, but given the threat to the republic that is represented in a lot of the things that these attorneys said and tried to do i think you know there is a there is a sense among a lot of people that you do have to treat this all a little differently than the run of the mill kinds of things that uh, that we see all the time well Stephen, i i would disagree that it's all that rare um you know, complaints against attorneys are, are filed with a lot of regularity. I think, in fact, sometimes they're filed too often. I've seen a lot of um, pretty suspect complaints that have been filed. Um, sanctions are not as rare as you think. I know that they're not filed all the time, but they, you know, I, I certainly we've filed them against um, uh, opposing par- parties, and we've had sanctions filed against us at the state of Michigan. Um, so it's, it's not that rare, mm-hmm. but I will say this. You know, were I to go, okay, so Judge Kenny uh, of the Wayne County Circuit Court, Chief Judge, several of these cases were heard by, by Judge Kenny. I personally have argued countless cases in front of Judge Kenny. Um, had I made the types of arguments and the types of claims uh, that were made um, in front of uh, Judge Kenny on, on many of the lawsuits involving specifically events that occurred uh, in the city of Detroit that were made against either Wayne County or against the city of Detroit or against the state of Michigan, uh, in the hundreds of cases I probably handled in front of Judge Kenny, I have no doubt he would have held me in contempt. I have no doubt he would have done that had I in any of the many other cases that I had argued. So I, I don't think that we're asking for anything that is much different than what you would ordinarily ask for if someone had simply fabricated, uh, quote unquote, evidence. I can't really call it evidence because, of course, they're just lies. But had I gone and said, you know, Your Honor, if I'd made up a witness or I'd made up a set of circumstances that didn't exist or was demonstrably untrue, um, I, I would expect that Judge Kenny would hold me in contempt. And I don't know why our expectation is any different just because someone is representing the president of the United States. Hmm. 
Uh, I want to change the subject uh, quickly here. We saw a pretty dramatic rise in violent threats against public officials in 2020. How concerned are you about that trend? And what is your office's role in trying to fight those threats? So I am very concerned about it. And what I have seen happen, it's not just this exponential growth uh, in the number uh, and in the sort of audacity of the threats that have been made against public officials of every kind. Um, And I'm not just talking about the governor or myself or the secretary of state. Uh, I'm talking about officials that, you know, prior to recent events, I don't think anyone had ever heard of even these positions, let alone who the individuals were that occupied these roles. So things like State Board of Canvassers or County Board of Canvassers, or even the names, the identities of local or county clerics. Most people don't know who their their local clerk is, but they've become more aware of it because of the nature of this particular election. And my concern is that the types of threats that never would have been accepted uh, in any other set of circumstance, it, now it seems to be the prevailing theory among many, uh, and unfortunately many even in law enforcement, is that this is just a casual cost of occupying those roles. And if you are a person in um, a, a public position, um, well, that's just a cost of doing business. People threaten your life. And I absolutely do not believe that that should be the case. Mm. Uh, we have many laws on the books that um, specifically uh, prohibit one from sending credible threats uh, against anyone, not just a public official, just anyone. So as a private person, you have the right to go about your life without somebody sending text messages or sending emails to your, uh, whether it's your personal account or your work account, threatening to do great bodily harm or to murder you. And so if, if, a, if an you know, everyday citizen of our state uh, has the right to go about his or her life free from those kinds of threats, I don't know why we would say that there's a different standard for public officials and elected officials that they somehow just have to put up with this. So I, you know, intend to be very aggressive in terms of pursuing those threats. We have a hate crimes division in my office that I set up a a few years ago. I know that you're aware of it Mm -hmm. because it was the source of some debate as to the audacity I had in setting up and establishing such a division but we're expanding that division. And not only are we going to be looking at, you know, white, the actions, the illegal acts of white supremacy groups, extremist groups um, that violate the law, but, you know, we will also be uh, scrutinizing these kinds of complaints that come to us where there are credible threats that are made to public officials. And I will tell you, I saw just recently um, in the news, I later talked to some of these state representatives, but there were a number of state representatives where somebody, I mean, right from their work account sent, um, you know, death threats to a number of representatives. And, and, you know, the thought, I think, by the person who sent it was that even he made no attempt to disguise his identity. And to me, that's how brazen it's become. People just think that that's fine. And I think the only way that we let people know that this is illegal, it is against the law, you don't get to go around threatening people's lives 
is by pursuing those cases, investigating them, and where there is enough evidence to prosecute them to make the point that, no, you can't just get away with doing this and have there be no legal repercussions. It is against the law. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask you about uh, you finding no criminal wrongdoing in the probe into the state's contact tracing contract with a company tied to Democrats. The report also says your office was unable to interview three critical witnesses who work or previously worked in state government, including the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services spokesperson Lynn Sutphin. Why weren't those witnesses available to be interviewed? And should we be concerned about that, that they would not answer your questions? Well, you know, firstly, when we were asked to conduct an investigation by uh, a state senator, uh, Senator Runstead, um, we, we took that on because I have said from, you know, the time that I ran for this office that my role um, as an investigative agency and as a prosecutorial agency, that I was not going to use it any different, whether we were investigating Democrats or Republicans. And, you know, obviously there was uh, a lot of concern about this particular contract that was actually quickly canceled by the governor. But when I was asked to investigate, um, I, I said, fine, we'll go ahead and we'll do an investigation. We did a comprehensive investigation. But remember, it's my role to see if any laws were broken. Not my role uh, to say were, were best practices used in terms of uh, procurement uh, of a contract my job to say, did you violate the law or not? And we interviewed absolutely everyone that we could. It was a very comprehensive 29-page report. We evaluated in that report that we made public each and every potential law that could come into play, and we found that there were no violations uh, of the law. And we go into great detail talking about why that is. And I've yet to hear one person say, well, I disagree with your analysis. In terms of the individuals who refused to be um, interviewed, the only way we can compel them to, you know, provide an interview to us and to sit down and talk to us is through the investigative subpoena process, where we have to have a judge sign on to an investigative subpoena in order to really make them talk to us. Um, but for that to happen, there must be probable cause that a felony was committed. So, for instance, if you have a murder case, when you know a person was murdered, you see that a person was shot to death, there's an autopsy, you know there's a crime, you just don't know who committed it, absolutely you can get an investigative subpoena if you can show some nexus that this is a person who might have information about that murder. But here, we had no evidence that there was a crime committed in the first place. So we wouldn't have been able to go to court to get a, a judge or a magistrate to sign an investigative subpoena to force them to talk to us because we had no evidence that there was a crime. So you, you, as law enforcement, you just can't go around and say to every single person, we want to talk to you. They have a right to say, I'm not going to talk to you unless you procure uh, an investigative subpoena under mm -hmm. state law, at least. So, so we, that, just, we just didn't have that evidence. Does that leave you with kind of an inconclusive end this? In other words, do you, do you not know uh, everything that might have happened that might have bumped up against uh, the, the legal the legal restrictions here? I mean, it, these were three people who, who were kind of at the center of this. If you don't know their stories, do you know the full story? Well, I guess you can never know the full story if you haven't been able to interview everyone. But we did 
many other interviews. We obviously received many, um, you know, emails that we evaluated. I, I feel as though in this particular set of circumstances, I don't know that they would have provided more information that would have led us to believe that there were there was any criminal conduct just because we had nothing else and, and all the extensive other information that we received and reviewed, we saw no indication of there being any crimes committed. But if I can compare it to something, Stephen, that people have stopped talking about a little bit, but you remember that during the MSU investigation, I very much wanted to talk to John Engler mm-hmm. and I could not get him to sit for an interview. And I know people said, well, you're the attorney general's office. Why can't you make him do that? And we just simply at that point had nothing to go on. Uh, he would have fought us if we had gotten an investigative subpoena. We wouldn't be able to say specifically why we thought he had knowledge of a specific felony. And and so we couldn't do it. You know, we thought that he was obligated to do so. And it was actually under his contract that indicated he was to cooperate in any investigations and refused to do so. But this is sort of similar to that in a way. Um, however, we, we just don't have any indication that there were any crimes whatsoever from all the other evidence. And I would really welcome people. We've made that public. Um, my philosophy is that if we are, are not going to charge someone with a crime and there is, you know, the, the kind of, um, I don't want to say suspicion, but you have a, a state senator that has requested this. And, you know, there seemed to be something unusual about um, the procedures. Uh, We make that public so everybody knows exactly what our interviewing process was, what our uh, method of collecting evidence was. And so they can read it for themselves and make a decision as to what our work was. I think that's my job as attorney general to make sure the public is as informed as possible about the nature of our investigations once they've been concluded and they can be made public. Okay. Uh, quickly before I have to let you go, I want to talk about the Flint water crisis. Governor Whitmer last month signed a $640 million settlement in the Flint water crisis. A lot of people in Flint think that number is low. You have been handling the civil side of the Flint water crisis response since you took office. How close does that get to delivering justice uh, to people of Flint? But I also then want you to update us on the criminal side of that investigation and, and, and where we stand. Well, on the civil side, you know, firstly, you know, this is the this is the largest settlement uh, in the history of the state of Michigan. So it's, it's not really inconsequential. I think it's also important that people understand that while this does include you know, this is the state of Michigan, McLaren Hospital, city of Flint. There are still parties that have not yet settled. So, of course, the engineering firms uh, have not settled. Neither has the EPA. Uh, and that could be a substantial settlement. My understanding is that um, the EPA, you know, there is a good opportunity for them now that we are going to see a change in the federal government, that the Biden administration has a great interest in moving forward on that. So, Right now, it's $641.2 million, and that doesn't include a lot of things that happened previous to this settlement. Uh, But, you know, I expect that number to grow uh, when you have other actors and other defendants that settle on this case. Uh, But that being the case, in in regard to how this affects the the criminal case, Mm -hmm. this doesn't directly impact the criminal cases because they are completely separate from one another. But I will say that, 
you know, in talking to the people who have been handling the criminal cases, and by that I mean my solicitor general, who is the point person for that, uh, Fabio Hamoud, as well as Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy, my understanding is that they are wrapping up the investigation uh, and that they will have some news for us likely this month as to what their conclusions are from the investigation. And I know that the the saying is generally justice delayed is justice denied, but I have every uh, full faith and confidence in both uh, my Solicitor General and Prosecutor Worthy that they have done an exhaustive review of all the new evidence. And remember, uh, an extraordinary amount of evidence that they received in addition to whatever the Schutte administration was looking at, um, and that whatever conclusions they come to um, will be will be fair uh, and will be in accordance with the law. So I look forward to finding out whatever their conclusions are as well. I do I do know that it took a bit longer than they had hoped because of the COVID pandemic, and unfortunately, a number of members of the criminal team actually came down with COVID during the course of the yeah. last year, oh, wow. which uh, delayed things. Uh, but, you know, there will be some answers soon. So I know people have been waiting for that for a very long time. Uh, just like everyone else, I look forward to hearing what they have to say about this. But um, the way will be over soon. Okay. Attorney General Dana Nessel, that was quite a wrap up there of uh, a lot of different issues that you've got your yeah. hands in. Thanks very much for helping us kick off the new year here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have a great conversation with award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA, Maria Inahosa, about her new memoir, Once I Was You. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. <laughs> 